After Jesus said this, he looked towards heaven and prayed, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son may glorify you. For you granted him authority over all people, that he might give eternal life to all those that you have given him. Now this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I have brought you glory on earth by finishing the work you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. I have revealed you to those whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours. You gave them to me, and they have obeyed your word. Now they know everything that you have given me comes from you. For I gave them the words you gave me, and they accepted them. They knew with certainty that I came from you, and they believed that you sent me. I pray for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those you have given me, for they are yours. All I have is yours, and all you have is mine. All glory has come to me through them. I will remain in the world no longer, but they are still in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, protect them by the power of your name, the name you gave me, so that they may be one as we are one. While I was with them, I protected them and kept them safe by the name that you gave me. None has been lost except the one doomed to destruction, so the scripture would be fulfilled. I am coming to you now, but I say these things while I am still in the world, so that they may have the full measure of my joy within them. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them. They are not of the world any more than I am of the world. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of it. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is the truth. And as you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. For them I sanctify myself, that they too may be truly sanctified. My prayer is not for them alone. I also pray for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one. I in them and you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am, to see my glory, the glory you have given me because you love me before the creation of the world. Righteous Father, Though the world does not know you, I know you, and they know you that you have sent me. I have made you known to them, and will continue to make you known, in order that the love you have for me may be in them, and I myself may be in them. My name is Carl. I'm the senior pastor here at Trinity Church Only. Over the last few weeks as a church, we've been working our way through two different books in the Bible. We've been looking at John's Gospel, which we're going to be looking at again this morning. And we've also been working through the book of Galatians as Jack, our associate pastor, has been taking us through that that letter to the church in Galatia. Jack is not with us here this morning. You might um, have not seen his smiling face. Jack is actually up at Trinity Church Golden Grove helping them out this morning. When Jack was a minister in training, so think Hendre and Jess, when Jack was a minister in training, he did one of his years up at Golden Grove and he actually helped to plant the church at Golden Grove. So he's been asked to come back to share his thoughts on becoming an associate pastor and the pathway that has happened since then. So it's a really terrific thing for Jack to do, to go and visit Golden Grove, to help them out and to kind of fill them in on the last few years about what God has been doing 
in his life. So we're hitting pause on Galatians today, partly because Jack's not with us, and partly because I wanted us to have a look at this last chapter, really, for us in John's Gospel. We've worked our way pretty much through the rest of John's Gospel, and today we arrive at chapter 17. Chapter 17, I don't know if you noticed that when Jamie read it to us, but it is essentially all a prayer that Jesus prays. It's in fact the longest of Jesus' prayers, not only in John's Gospel, but in all the Gospels together. This is the longest prayer that John prays. Um, today, our, our primary school age kids are going to be in the program. Thanks, thanks so much for those of you who help look after our kids normally on our Sunday mornings by either helping out in creche or in the kids program. I haven't looked at the statistics for a while, but um, Trinity Church only at least at the start of last year had the highest ratio of children to adults across the whole of the Trinity network of churches. And <clears throat> excuse me, my guess is that would be the same for Adelaide. We have a large number of kids, which is a really terrific blessing um, from God for us as a church, but it also makes looking after them um, something that's a challenge for us. And I'm really, really grateful for those of you who help out and look after our kids on Sunday morning. Thank you so much for doing that. Well, chapter 17 of John, it's a really encouraging chapter. I hope that's what you feel when we get to the end of the morning this morning. But it's also a really tricky chapter to read because it's full of pronouns, eyes, use, yours, theys, those sorts of things. And I think it makes it quite tricky to get our, our heads around what's going on in this chapter. So to help us navigate our way through the chapter this morning, I want you to see that there are three very clear sections to Jesus' prayer in John chapter 17. In each section, Jesus prays for a different person or for a different group of people. So in the first section, Jesus prays for himself. In the second section, he prays for his 11 disciples. And in the third section, he prays for us. That's right, he prays for you and for me. He prays for those who believe the message about who Jesus is as it's been passed on by his disciples. And to help us kind of remember these three sections this morning, as we work our way through them, I've got a physical item that kind of represents or summarizes to some extent, what we've looked at in each of the different sections. And that's especially for our primary school age kids for joining in with us this morning. But perhaps even those of you who have graduated primary school, you may find that a little helpful. Before we dig into this chapter in detail this morning, I just want to point out something that you might have missed as Jamie read it to us. It, it's, it's really obvious when you think about it, but also I think it helps shape how we understand this passage. And that is that John wrote this chapter. What's so strange about that? Well, that tells us that one way or another, John knew the content of Jesus' prayer. Either he was listening into Jesus praying or afterwards Jesus told him. I think it's probably more likely that John overheard Jesus' prayer with the rest of the disciples. I don't think John's eavesdropping at this point. Remember, this comes at the end of the farewell discourse that we've been looking at as a church for a while. Jesus has been having a meal with his disciples in the upper room of his house of the house, and he's been telling them over and over again that he's about to leave them. He's been helping them to see what's going to happen the very next day, that he's going to die. And then at the start of chapter 17, we read that Jesus looked towards heaven and he prayed. And I suspect that the disciples were just there with him, listening, and so in one sense, they're joining in on this prayer. 
So Jesus is, is praying to God the Father, but I think the prayer is also for the benefit of the disciples who are, who are listening in. And that makes it also for our benefit today as we read the prayer. Now, prayer works like that sometimes, doesn't it? Let me give you an example from our family, how this, how this works in our family. A few years back, we went down to the beach for dinner. It was a lovely evening and we intended to go down and get fish and chips down at Henley Square or something like that. And as we walked into the square, there was one of those ice cream, kind of temporary ice cream carts set up on the side. And Gus said to me, Dad, could we get ice cream? And I thought, well, you know, we're having fish and chips for dinner. That's probably enough kind of of the foods that you shouldn't eat too much. And so I said to him what I normally say to him when I actually mean no. I said, maybe, we'll talk about it later. And Gus kind of looked at me and thought, okay, I won't press any harder right now. He seemed to forget about it. Anyway, we ordered our fish and chips. We sat down on the grass and we were about to eat. And I said, who would like to give thanks? And Gus says, I'll do it tonight. And so this is his prayer. He said something like this. Father God, we thank you for the beach. Thank you that we can be down here to enjoy it together. Thank you for giving us fish and chips that we can share together as a family. And thank you that after fish and chips, we can have ice cream together as a family as well. Amen. There's only about five at the time. And it's a prayer that he prayed to God. He was praying to God. He was praying to God the Father. But he knew full well that me as his earthly dad was listening into that prayer. He was legitimately giving thanks to God. Acknowledging that good things come from him. But it was also designed to help me remember that he wanted ice cream. In John chapter 17... Jesus, I think, knows the disciples are listening in. And I think he knows as well that we, as readers of John's Gospel, would be listening into this prayer 2,000 or so years later. And so what does the prayer say? Well, in verses 1 to 5, we see Jesus praying for his own glory and for the glory of the Father. Now, the disciples can't make this happen, can they? This is the work of God the Father that will do this. But they get to listen into this prayer. Let me read it to you. Uh, the words will come up on the screen, or if you've got a, a Bible with you this morning, turn to John chapter 17 and we'll have a look at the first five verses together. This is what it says Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son may glorify you. For you granted him authority over all people, that he might give eternal life to all those you have given him. Now this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I have brought you glory on earth by finishing the work you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. Now, there's, there's so much in here, isn't there? The hour has come, Jesus says. Now for those of you who have been following along as we've worked our way through John's gospel, you, you might have noticed this idea about the hour before. It's a, a literary device that John's used a number of times throughout his gospel. Remember back in the wedding feast, Jesus' hour had not yet come. But now, now as he's about to go to his death, his hour has come. Since the start of chapter 13, Jesus has been telling his disciples over and over and over again that he's about to leave them. With the benefit of, of hindsight, we know that that's going to happen in just a few hours after he's finished praying this prayer. In just a few hours, the very next day, he'll be hung on a cross and he'll be killed. 
And we know with the benefit of the rest of the New Testament, don't we, that that this is indeed the moment in which the true glory of Jesus is seen. This is the event in history where God's glory shines most brightly because his death is the way in which Jesus finishes the work that God gave him to do. It's through his death that his followers can have eternal life. His death atones for the sin of the world. His death makes a way for sinful people to know the true God to know him intimately, to know him as closely as they possibly could. The cross, as as horrifying as it is, a device of torture and cruelty, it's also the device which God uses to show the glory of Jesus. And today we know this because we have the benefit of the rest of the Bible that explains to us what happened on the cross. But for the 11 disciples who've been listening in to Jesus at this point, sharing in his Last Supper, for them it must have felt, as Jesus told them time and time again, that he's leaving, that he's going, that their world was about to collapse. Their leader had been telling them that he's about to die, about to leave. And so they must have been worried and sad and and just wondering if they'd done the right thing in following after him. And I think part of what Jesus then is doing in this prayer is is flipping the disciples' emotions upside down. See, the next day he could forgive the 11 disciples for thinking that the cross and the death of their Lord was the end of the road for the Jesus movement. But Jesus is saying to them, no way, this is not the end of the road. Rather, this is the moment in which my glory will shine most brightly. This is what I came to do. This is how I finished the work that the Father gave me to do. And all other movements where you might follow a leader or someone who's great at what they do, it would be madness to follow them after their death, wouldn't it? So, you know, for example, think about football for a moment. Your hero might be Jack Rewald or Rory Sloan. If they're killed, that's the end of it, isn't it? You don't go to a game next week chanting and shouting out their name. But that's not what happens with Jesus. This is not the end of the road for Jesus' followers. Rather, his death is the moment in which God will glorify him most brightly and most profoundly, and in doing so, Jesus will bring glory to the Father. His death is not an accident, is it? Not that Jesus has just started a political movement that's now spiraled out of control with the death of his leader. No, his death, his resurrection, it's all part of God's plan. It's all part of God's plan. And so here's the physical thing that I've got this morning to try and remind you of that. Um, I've got in my bag here somewhere a uh, a snow globe. I've got one on the screen as well. The one on the screen's much better than this one. Um, This one is a snow globe that Piper made. Um, The thing about snow globes, they're supposed to have like a really interesting scene in them. And they look great, but the full glory of the snow globe doesn't, you don't really see it until you flick it upside down and you see the snow and the glitter in this case. I kind of think it's the same sort of thing that's going on here. Jesus is turning the emotions of the disciples upside down, showing them that his death is the thing that brings him most glory. This is the way in which Jesus is glorified, spinning things upside down. They're not to be concerned. It's not an accident. He knows what he's doing. Well, the next section of the prayer, you'll see that if you're following along in your Bibles, it has a heading in it. It's helpful for us to see this is the next section. In verses 6 to 19, Jesus moves on from praying for himself to pray for his disciples. There are 11 of them at this point in the story. You remember earlier on, 
Judas had left the Last Supper. He had departed out into the darkness of the night. And from verses 6 to 10 then, Jesus prays for the identity of the remaining 11 disciples. Let me read to you. It says this, verse 6. I have revealed you to those whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours. You gave them to me and they have obeyed your word. Now they know that everything you have given me comes from you. For I gave them the words you gave me and they accepted them. They knew with certainty that I came from you and they believed that you sent me. I pray for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those you have given me. For they are yours. All I have is yours and all you have is mine. And glory has come to me through them. So firstly, who are Jesus' disciples? Well, they are those who God the Father has given to Jesus. They are those who have obeyed the words of God the Father that were given to Jesus to speak. And as you look at this section of of, uh, chapter 17, there's a really strong emphasis here on the words that God has spoken to Jesus and that have been spoken by Jesus. They know these words as disciples. They know that these words were given to Jesus by God the Father. Remember that the 11 disciples are listening into this prayer. I hope they're being encouraged here to keep being people of the word, to keep being people who listen and obey the words of God the Father. And then in verse 11, Jesus begins to petition the Father, asking that God would protect his disciples. Let me read on. It says this from verse 11. I will remain in the world no longer, Jesus speaking, but they are still in the world and I am coming to you. Holy Father, protect them by the power of your name, the name you gave me, so that they may be one as we are one. While I was with them, I protected them and kept them safe by the name you gave me. None has been lost except the one doomed to destruction, so that scripture would be fulfilled. See, when Jesus was with his disciples, he was always the one doing the protecting, wasn't he? So if you're in a little boat with Jesus and the disciples and a storm comes up, who's the one that protects them? Jesus. If you're out teaching and 5,000 men and their families turn up and they start getting hungry and demanding food, who's the one that helps out in that situation? Who fixes it? Jesus. But he's about to leave them. And so Jesus prays for the protection of the disciples. He asks that they'd stand as one and that they wouldn't be lost as Judas has been lost. And he goes on in verses 14 to 16 to pray that the disciples would be protected from a world that is against them. Now come down to verse 17. I'm going to read to you from verse 17. It says this, Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. For them I sanctify myself, that they too may be truly sanctified. Now this word sanctification or sanctify, we don't use it very often in our day-to-day speech, do we? It means to be set apart or to be made holy. And if we remember that, then this little section, I think, makes much more sense rather than just using the word sanctify. So Jesus prays to God the Father, asking that the disciples would be set apart from the rest of the world by the truth that is his words. What makes the disciples different is that they have known and accepted the words of God. Jesus was sent into the world. He set himself apart from the rest of the world in order that the disciples might know God's words and God's actions. 
And by dying on the cross, he has enabled the disciples to be truly holy. And having done all of that, Jesus is about to send his disciples out into the world, carrying his words, ready to pass them on to others. And his prayer then, it's it's a petition that Jesus is making to the Father that the disciples would make his words known. And that happens, doesn't it? Eventually the disciples will, will write down what they have heard from God the Father through the words of Jesus. So that even us, 2,000 years later, can read of those words in the Bible. And that's why it's so important that God would protect them and hold on to them. Because this is how the Father's words will be known by us today. So how do we want to represent this? How do we represent protection of the disciples so that they might pass on the words they've been given? Well, I wonder what comes to your mind when you think of the idea of protection at the moment. And probably one of the things that jumps to most of our thoughts at the moment is a face mask or something like that. Wearing a face mask is a good way to protect us. But I've been getting out on a bike a bit lately. I've been trying to do some exercise on my bike. Sorry about my rattly microphone. And so today I've got my bike protection. You can't go anywhere in Adelaide on your bike without having your head protection on, can you? For some of us that's more useful than others. But there's my bike helmet. Oh, sorry. My bike helmet to remind us that this section is about protecting the disciples so that they might pass on the words of God. The final section of the prayer that we're going to look at this morning is an amazing bit because in this prayer we see Jesus praying for you and I. Let me read to you from verse 20, last section of the prayer. My prayer is not for them alone, not for the disciples alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. See, how do we know about Jesus today? How do we know about him? How do we know of this prayer? Well, mainly because Jesus' prayer and in the previous sections, Jesus' words as they were spoken, they were written down for us. In other words, Jesus' prayer in the previous section, that was answered because the disciples were protected long enough that they could write the Bible for us. And today we can read that message in the New Testament. That's why it's so important for the disciples to stand protected, unified and sanctified so that the message of Jesus might be passed on to us today. So that generation after generation might hear the words of Jesus. His prayer was answered. What does Jesus pray for us today? We see that in verses 21 and 22. His prayer is that we would be unified, that we would be as one. I wonder how that makes you feel this morning as you hear those words. If you've read other parts of the New Testament, you might have seen this. It's kind of almost a drumbeat that we see throughout the New Testament that we would be unified as a church, that we would be one body, that we would have one mind. And yet when you look around the world and look around the church, it seems like so often this is just not the case. It seems like the church is so quick to splinter and split over so many things. It looks like that for us. The church is often fractured and disjointed. And after all, the church is filled with people like you and I, isn't it? It's filled with people who are are frail and fallible and sinful. 
But I wonder at times if we just have too low a view of church. I want to read to you a little from one of C.S. Lewis's books, The Screwtape Letters. We talked about this a bit in community group this week. If you're not familiar with The Screwtape Letters, they're, they're a series of letters written from, they're fiction, right? They're not part of the Bible, but they're written from a, a senior perspective of a senior devil writing to a junior devil on advice about how to turn his patient away from Jesus. And here's what the senior devil says to the junior devil very early on in this book. He says this, One of our great allies at present is the church itself. Don't misunderstand me. I don't mean the church as we see her, as the demons see her, spread out through all time and space, rooted in eternity, terrible as an army with banners. That, I confess, is a spectacle which makes our boldest tempter uneasy. But fortunately, it's quite invisible to these humans. See, Lewis goes on then to point out the the inadequacies of the church that we see so often. We see broken and frail people, people who annoy us, people who frustrate us. But here's the thing that I want you to see from this passage. Lewis calls the church in the sight of these demons. He calls it a terrible army with banners. Is that how you see the church? Sure, the church is people that are filled with disagreeable people. But it's also a mighty army with banners mighty powerful and hopefully unified and jesus prays that we will be unified and i'd encourage you today amongst all the division and all the splits that you can see in the church across the world i'd encourage you today to think about how we might be unified how this gathering might be unified how trinity church only might be unified Because I reckon if the evil one, we talked about this in community group this week, I think this is very helpful, I think if the evil one wanted to do real damage to us as a church, a great way for him to do that would be to turn us against each other, to promote division and discontent amongst us, amongst us even though we're friends. How do we protect against that? We remember that we are unified in Jesus. That we're unified through the words of God. Verse 23 of our passage says this, I in them and you in me so that they may be brought to complete unity. Jesus wants us to know that our unity is in him and in his words. Well, what's the object that might help us to remember that Jesus is praying for the church and praying for us to be unified? What's something that might help us to stick together? I thought I'd get some glue this morning as our object to help us remember that we are to stick together that we are to be unified got a big tube of uh, super glue up there liquid nails here jesus prayer is that we might be unified that we might stick together that we might be one i wonder if there's one thing you could do this week that might help you to be more unified with those around us I'd like you to pray this week that we'd be, as a church, unified around the words of God, unified around Jesus. That might mean that this week you need to reach out to some others and say sorry. It means that you might just need to reach out to someone this week and just see how they're going. It might mean this week that you need to choose to put up with something that's been bothering you or to go about fixing that in the best possible way. I reckon the drumbeat of the New Testament is that the church would be unified, that it would be united around God's word and around the person of Jesus. That's what Jesus prays for the church as he heads to the cross.
I'm going to pray that we'd be that today now as well. Father God, we give you thanks for Jesus' work on the cross and for the way in which that makes us right with you, for the way in which it brings glory to both you and to him. Father, we thank you for the disciples who you protected, who wrote down your words for us in the Bible that we can understand your will for us in our lives today. Father, as we look at your church across the world, it does seem so often to be broken and fractured and frail. We ask that you would protect us and unify us. Do that around your word and around the person of Jesus. We ask for your name's sake. Amen.